Welcome to Art of the Frame. My name is Damian Allen, and today we're interviewing the VFX leads behind the new Marvel blockbuster, Black Panther, Wakanda Forever. Jeff Bauman is the show's visual effects supervisor and was also second unit director for the underwater unit. Jeff has a VFX career spanning over 20 years and has a long history with the Marvel Universe, working as a supervisor on Black Widow, X-Men Dark Phoenix, the original Black Panther, Doctor Strange, Captain America Civil War, Avengers Age of Ultron, Captain America the Winter Soldier, Iron Man 3, and the original Avengers movie. Joining Jeff is Michael Ralla, also a visual effects supervisor on the show. Michael also has a storied visual effects career, working as a supervisor on the award-winning 2021 Joel Cohen adaptation, The Tragedy of Macbeth, the acclaimed 2018 film Christopher Robin, as well as many other high-profile features, music videos, and commercials. If you like what you hear, please subscribe to make sure you don't miss any of the upcoming shows, all tailored to filmmakers. You can listen to The Art of the Frame on all the major podcast platforms, and please... Spread the word about the podcast to your friends and leave a review to help others discover the show. So let's dive deep with Jeff and Michael into the challenges and their approaches to the visual effects saturated Black Panther, Wakanda Forever. Welcome, guys. We are going to talk about the amazing new movie that's out right now, and it is Black Panther, Wakanda Forever. Obviously, huge show, and the box office and the critics agree. You could say, hey, it's Marvel, it's going to do well anyway, but we're in this post-COVID theater-going era where attendance is unpredictable. People are not necessarily going to risk showing up to a movie theater these days. And also, I would say the other thing about this particular film that made it difficult was actually handling Chadwick Boseman's passing in the storyline, and that could have gone very wrong, but by most accounts was handled extremely well. Um, frankly, gave a lot of powerful female African-American actors a chance to somewhat address the overrepresentation of white male superheroes. So I think incredible success just from all of the obstacles that came with this one. But we're here to talk about the visual effects. It, it used to be back in the day, we would talk about how many hundred effects shots there were in a movie, but in, in a film like this, it's almost like how many weren't VFX, right? Yeah. I think we touched about 90% of the film shots were visual effects. Now, obviously those are to varying degrees from cleanup uh, to all CG. So we touched 90% of it and that was right around 2,350-ish shots. I mean, yeah. that's an insane amount. And the runtime, two hours, 47 or yeah. something like that, I think. Uh, to keep the majority of critics positive for a film that long is a testament in itself. So, yeah. I agree. I think you, you touched on a number of the things in your intro there with regards to the challenges that we had to overcome. And I, I couldn't agree more with how, how successful Ryan was at doing it. It was a delicate balance, I think, overall, of appeasing to all of the crowds out there that wanted different things from this film. Um, yeah. You know, the superhero fans that want the action, but yet we needed to deal with Chadwick's passing and T'Challa's passing. And how do you do that respectfully and emotionally? And I think Ryan did a, a phenomenal job of. Yeah, without it seeming glib and lip yeah. service or any of those sorts of things. Yeah, it was very well done. I mean, uh, you would have heard about it <laughs> across the universe if it wasn't, because yeah. I'm sure. There would have been all kind of incensed people, but yeah, it was really well done. So let's start out by talking about approach. So I'm always curious 
uh, in terms of the division between in-camera effects work and post-production CG effects work. So when this one got going, uh, obviously certain directors lean very much into CG. Others just say, no, we got to build everything we can. What was the balance here with that? I think Ryan on this one wanted to try to build and shoot as much as he could practically. Okay. Um, so and that was kind of a mandate, and which I appreciated as well, because I, yeah. I feel now there is sometimes a tendency to lean a little bit more towards CG and visual effects yeah. from the standpoint of it's easier on the shoot day just to kick the can a little bit. And I think now I find myself kind of fighting to convince people that it can be done in camera rather than when I started my career. It was, no, we can do that in CG. That could be something we could do. Whereas now shooting something practically is sometimes a challenge, a bigger challenge to get the whole team moving in that direction. So that was something Ryan really wanted to do, even for the underwater sequences as well, was to shoot it wet for wet. And that's where I think the collaboration between all of the departments really came into effect was trying to determine what was achievable in the time frame that we had because that was another factor in this is our schedule was pushed due to Chad's unfortunate passing our release date was still there and so the post time got shorter and shorter as did kind of the prep as well hmm. so it was kind of we were getting squeezed somewhat from both ends so we needed to be efficient with all of the departments to make sure that their energy was being put into the right areas so uh, from a special effects standpoint, a lot of these gags that Dan Sudik and his team had to come up with aren't things that you can come up with overnight. So he and I would often kind of brainstorm together to see what they could achieve. And then he could pitch something to Ryan that I was already aware of and vice versa, so that we knew something that we were pitching was achievable. And I think that process kind of rippled across multiple departments through props. Our prop master, Drew Petrata, was always communicative with us after his meetings with Ryan about things that he saw coming down in the same for us is where we would then flag things that were a concern to us and to see if Drew could practically help us out with a prop. And that went to stunts and everything as well. But I think that the main kind of relationship or the cornerstone, I should say, of that relationship was probably visual effects and Autumn, our, our DP because that image that she created or vision or style, that vibe, as she likes to say, right. is what we needed to gravitate towards and embrace it and try to find ways that our CG uh, for the heavier CG shots still had that same sense or feel of an in-camera shot that she would do. Right. So th there was a seamlessness to the overall picture. I guess a testimony to the film that I, it was hard for me to figure out where the practical sets left off on some of this. So yeah. let's talk about like downtown Wakanda. What, how much of that was practical and how much, obviously the backgrounds were extensions, but yep. how much of that did you build? We built, I'd probably say about three, there was an exterior, what we call big blue and baby blue in a location in Atlanta. There were big container yards and we built probably about a city block for the flood sequence of the golden city there. And then a, a little area on the edge of a river, river town, we called it. So those were two pretty significant builds. Though once you put the water and the set dressing, they end up being much smaller. They all look a lot bigger on paper. And then once you get <laughs> into that, you realize that there is a lot more CG that's needed. Um, did you build a tank? We uh, did. Yeah. Yeah. So both of those sets had a four foot retaining wall that was surrounding them. And then there were dump tanks in each of those. And the larger one, the Little Rivertown one, actually then had a 10 foot basin dug into the ground there. Okay. So that we had a little right. more depth. And that's where we did do some of the uh, the underwater work for the mining mission, which was the first sequence in the film with the two divers that go underwater. 
Were there any scaled models or was most of the water stuff just at scale with the actors? We did, we, we did a scaled models for just kind of development and research and reference. So Dan Sudik right. built for both of those sets, a third scale models that we kind of evaluated kind of the flow uh, of it. But then we also did shoot a miniature for the window that were the hydro bombs hit when uh, Ramonda right. is standing yep. at the glass. So that was shot practically in on set in a real scale. And then we did shoot a one third scale miniature window of the same getting hit with water for the glass breaking. So we really tried to kind of touch as many different methodologies or disciplines in this. So there was miniatures, you know, dry for wet for wet, CG characters, pretty much the gambit both on the CG side and special effects side. Explain to people what dry for wet means if they don't know. No worries. So yeah, there's primarily, I guess, okay, two approaches to shooting something that is supposed to give the illusion of being underwater or be underwater. And the dry for wet approach is shooting something on dry land where we then visually try to change the image or manipulate frame rates, that kind of thing, to, to, to make it look like it is underwater. And then the other approach would actually be going into a tank and then shooting it wet for wet in the water. And then there are great benefits to that, but then there's also hurdles to overcome. So our approach was to shoot wet for wet first, because for me, I think there's a lot of also just verbiage and dialogue that can get lost in conversation with regards to what underwater means. Uh, it's a part of the earth that we nobody's completely explored and there's areas right. that are unknown and also kind of perceptions of what visibility is underwater and how color yeah. is absorbed. And so a lot of that, we went through an educational process, both with all of the filmmakers and ourselves to make sure we were referring to things in the same way. You know, so turbidity and what is turbidity so that when that came up, we knew what that meant or similar to like depth hazing, we have backscatter of particles in the water. And so early on was just establishing a little bit of verbiage for us all so that Ryan could give us notes, Autumn could give us notes, and then also ourselves educating us, myself, Michael, and then Ryan and everyone else as far as what happens to color and how it's absorbed underwater and that color still exists. It doesn't disappear. It's just it's absorbed by the water and it has to do with the distance that the camera is away from a certain color and whether or not there's light on that particular wall or or piece of color. So that, and then evaluating in a dry for wet world. So let's say now you're not underwater. How do you deal with aspects of specularity? Certain specularity doesn't exist as it does <laughs> above water, underwater, because right. that's absorbed. So trying to come up with solutions to kind of keep that illusion alive if you're shooting in a dry for wet world versus wet for wet. Now, was that, were there practical solutions like dulling spray or was it just working out ways to filter off some of those speculas and things like that? Exactly. It was more working off ways to kind of filter those off. Right. And then we did for Namor, for example, probably the most, the, the biggest scene underwater is where he's sitting in a throne after Shuri's escaped Telecon. And he's talking to his people that they're not going to move and they're going to go attack the Golden City. And so that we tested that early on as kind of our test bed as far as what water could do. And we shot that wet for wet and dry for wet. But to your question there, he has gold epaulets in that. And we did have to try to knock those down a little bit post. But at the same time, we did try to also add a little bit more of halation, you could say, around it or a little bit of bloom from the water, the backscattering of those highlights off of those epaulets. But we did always try to kind of be true to the reference that we had of it underwater. And I mean, in, in Tenochtitlan, 
absolutely crushed his performance underwater. I mean, he delivered a two and a half, three minute monologue underwater wow. for that scene. And I think that was the, the big challenge for me, visual effects wise, is the ability to hopefully be able to intercut. And we do uh, in the film from a wet for wet shot to dry for wet and back to wet for wet, and then a couple dry for wets in a row. And I that was the hope is to kind of lose people a little bit so that you were like, wait, they, they did shoot that underwater, but wait, that is not underwater and hopefully you don't think about it too long and you get lost in the no it, it, i have to say it, that scene stood out because it was one of those things where it's like there's something kicking in my brain that doesn't quite understand how this was shot yeah if that makes sense yeah no totally yeah, yeah. and so i was curious about that yeah yeah it, it's worth adding to that that we're not only cutting back to back between dry for wet and wet for wet but there's also all cg shots sprinkled in and the big benefit of shooting wet for wet is you have a perfect reference what it looks like underwater. Yeah. So that moment, you also have a perfect target for your CG. And I think that generally was the approach on this film. We weren't trying to make shit up, as some people would sometimes <laughs> accuse us of in VFX. Yeah. Everything that we did was reference-based, whether that yeah. was in terms of movement or in terms of like, opticals and we're gonna gonna get into the lenses and all that stuff later but also in terms so, of just overall look and behavior and like what is it and what does it look like underwater like right it was all based on actual look reference and almost every single shot in the whole movie has a photographic base element whether it was used or not that's potentially a different question but when everything was as much grounded in reality and not only in reality, but also in like a photographic and cinematic and referenced reality. And so for those dry forwards there, did you guys run hair sims to get the yes. hair working with them? Okay, so you yeah. did a hair replacement or? We, yeah, so I mean, and essentially even the wet for wet stuff, we often replace the hair underwater. Because right. I got to stop and say that was really well done. Like I okay. just assumed that was all practical, but obviously to have it, it choreographed so well that it couldn't have been. Right? That so. was exactly. And that was the balance of working with Ruth Carter and costumes as far as like, okay, what layers do we wear when we are in the tank, in the water? Because, you know, the, Ruth designs these amazing, intricate, beautiful costumes that may not move exactly how we want. So those probably need to get art directed a little. So we would maybe take that outer layer off and then we would then shoot with an underlayer and have to put a CG layer over the outside of that and then run a cloth sim across that. The same with the hair in the wet for wet. So shooting in the tank didn't necessarily solve all of the problems, but it did ground us even in those moments. And then we would take the costume in the water and move it around so we could see what it moved like. But it was kind of one of those things knowing, especially on these films, pe people change their minds and we want to be prepared to be able to adjust that. But then we would have a similar problem shooting dry for wet is you didn't want that costume just kind of hanging on somebody because there would be a little more float to it in water. So then we looked at the costumes to think about which pieces made sense to keep on the dry for wet world. Some casting shadows like tenoches or headpieces. Those are pretty significant. So we tried to come up with ways of having something on his head that still allowed him to move so that it cast a shadow correctly. And it felt like something was there, knowing that we would probably have to replace you know, all of the kelp leaves and feathers, et cetera, that were in the headdress themselves. So it was really trying to find that balance and then acting with all the other HODs to determine what they could achieve on the day for us. Did you do any playing with camera crank on the dry for wet to try and get it feeling a little bit slower like yeah we shot or? everything in the dry for wet we shot everything at 48 and we also developed a stereo 
uh, camera system that was really? attached to both Hero cameras for all of our dry for wet work, which Weta helped us develop. And uh, essentially, I mean, Rala, you can touch on it a, a little bit more because Michael helped build it kind of with their camera department. And it was pretty phenomenal in generating 3D mesh with the Hero camera and then the two stereo pair just kind of right underneath the main lens. So, so, so kind, of kind of a rudimentary volumetric capture using the stereo, is that? Exactly. You know, right. that, that was the thought. Correct, exactly. So it was an on-camera stereo witness camera setup. I think about like 12 inches off to the side on each side using like little Blackmagic cameras um, that were gen-locked to our main camera. And we tested that fairly early on, even during pre-production. And the goal was not only to get like a volumetric slash depth representation of the scene, but also tap into some Markeless motion capture that uh-huh. Weather wanted to test out on this project, which was like even the tests that they showed us early on were incredible. I mean, their whole pipeline, their whole comp pipeline is heavily deep based. So now right. all of a sudden having access to the, the depth of what's happening in front of the, the live action camera is invaluable. And they gave them a lot of like different ways and means to integrate elements into what we were shooting so just for the audience real quick deep it's actually a like almost a brand name for a system of storing pixel data that basically fills up all your hard drives (laughs) 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 it it stores multiple depth information for every pixel so it's very powerful stuff and obviously wetter have it deeply embedded in their pipeline so they can take advantage of all that data right and we knew kind of going into this because of our schedule and time frame that it was going to be difficult to do traditional mocap and could you do underwater mocap and all of the trials and tribulations that may go along with that so we definitely I'd say leaned into image-based capture. And so was it a machine learning style mocap? Exactly. So there was that, that, and it was primarily through Weta. And we did the same thing in the underwater tank. We had eight underwater witness cameras that are surrounding our cylindrical tank. And we opted to kind of go that route from a motion capture standpoint, if you will, for character motion as well, for background motion and all of that, rather than trying to do underwater actual motion capture. Wow. I'm curious, how clean and reliable was that mocap data coming out of that process? It definitely did require manual work yeah. on the back end and cleanup for sure, but it was better than I think ant- anticipated. And way better than eyeballing it from the yes. 2D frame. Yeah. <laughs> and I think the other part there is, I think I was trying to factor in the amount of time it would take to get an actual under... Just Getting a volume set up for regular mocap isn't the most straightforward thing. So now doing it underwater and then what are the technical implications or things that could break or errors, et cetera, that come into that process. Has anyone done optical mocap underwater? I don't think so. I I I don't even know how the infrared would work, right? With that kind of, with that water blocking. Well, no, uh, I believe that, well, on Avatar, I think they did the traditional. That would make sense, yeah. We tried to be considerate and not get too much into their business as far as what worked and didn't work necessarily. I just knew from our standpoint, we needed to be ready to pivot and move well, you guys didn't have 20 years of our no exactly <laughs> so, yes yeah so we needed to have a quick solution that hopefully the brain trust at weta would be able to figure out and in the worst case scenario you had traditional witness cameras to do rotamation to right. so that was kind of our approach going in was like okay hopefully this can be more uh, at a bare minimum it's this great reference we keep we've got multiple angles of the same animation 
all the cameras are shutter synced. So we've got the right position in space and then hopefully it could be more. Correct. Cool. So it, you always have the depth reconstruction as a fallback, which yeah. gives you a pretty, pretty um, good reference uh, in terms of where things are, what they're doing and all of that. And I mean, the typical issue usually is that you don't have necessarily very good temporal consistency between frames mm -hmm. and that it gets a little noisy. But that was the one aspect where they really surprised us. Like even the test that we shot early on with just a, a Canon C300 as main camera and using the same pair left and right uh, of that produced really surprisingly good results. That was a moment when Jeff was like, we're definitely going to move forward with that. <laughs> as someone who ran a stereoscopic conversion studio in the Doc Doc past, I would have loved to get my hands on that stereoscopic camera footage, but I'm guessing the conversion was all just a straight post-process. Yeah, that's yeah. unfortunately where a lot of these... This is the reality of pipelines. Yeah, yeah the yeah. ideas unfortunately often drift into Weta, DD, ILM, or whoever's the, the wizards at whichever partner you're working with. And then you, at this point, I'm kind of relying on them to get that information back. Because you bring up an interesting point there, because with the size of these shows and the number of assets that cross vendors or, or partners, yeah. I wish there was more, and it's getting better and better, but I wish there was a better way for them to play together. That being said, you're getting into really deep nuts and bolts with that type of tech other yeah. than that, yeah, I think this sure. show was an extreme great example of collaboration across yeah, how many, all of our partners. How many know. vendors would you say touched? We had 17 officially on our end, but I know ILM, for example, worked with Whiskey Tree, who aren't yeah. in, great guys. in that 17 that I mentioned. Probably just under around 2,350-ish shots, I think, at the end of the day. We touched, like I said, I think 90% of the film. ILM, DD, and Weta were our probably biggest partners as far as complexity goes, but Rise and Cinesite were equal up there with it as far as shot count goes. They had close to 300 shots. Weta didn't have quite as many shots as everyone else, but they had probably the most complex because they did all of the underwater work was Weta, other than some of the pieces in the third act, which were digital domain. So let's talk a little bit more about the underwater stuff. I mean, obviously everything's amazing, but that was, to me, fairly groundbreaking, I think, in terms of just the realism, it really felt grounded. It didn't feel like a bunch of people pretending to be on water. And I'm guessing a lot of that is to do with the practical nature of the shooting. But tell me kind of what the breakdown was, how many of the elements were underwater typically. And then I'm guessing you had to do some cheating in terms of visibility yes. and which, but it still looked very plausible. I mean, I'm looking at going, okay, there's no way I would be able to see that thing way back there, but it didn't feel like, oh no, they just fudged it. It actually felt very natural. So I'm sure a lot of thought went into that. A lot. And Weta was our first partner on the show from a development standpoint. So we were really exploring water early on, like I was saying, to get kind of that, the terminologies back and forth and to educate ourselves and Ryan about what water characteristics do to, to an image. And I think our, the goal then for us was to have that foreground element, if at all possible, always be practical. And another challenge to that actually was Autumn's choice in her detuned Panavision C-series lenses was we didn't have much extra frame at the top and bottom. So she was using that full sensor. So mm -hmm. normally I think you and I would have said, hey, let's shoot this spherical underwater. So we got a little bit of extra room. So framing, we don't need to be quite so so perfect. But 
she was very adamant about everything underwater for the sequences being two times anamorphic. You so know. her reticle was the entire frame. Basically. It was the whole frame. So wow. there was no extra wiggle room, top or bottom of that. Which come on, did you cheat and blow up a couple of the shots? Away? There were no, I mean, <laughs> <laughs> between this us is, and everyone listening. Right. This is <laughs> really interesting because we there were several moments when we were like, oh, it would be really nice to have clean uh, VFX elements uh, that have a little bit more headroom, top and bottom, and oh. we both both tried and we both got the same answer it was always wow. my lenses bro nice try yeah so she could tell yeah. when the lens distortion disappeared or whatever yep. like, yep. No, yeah, that's, she, she's very adamant too i think you kind of touched on the fact that it is tonally this film is a, a bit more somber overall but also the imagery and the lighting is much more moody than the first film yeah. as well and autumn was very adamant about maintaining that as well underwater like not interestingly I'll say that looking at some of the reviews, there were some criticisms of that, yes. but I think definitely the film had a feel. And I think with the seriousness of this whole handling Chadwick's passing, uh, it kind of needed something like that. So I agree. And I think then to your question, the underwater world, we still, we did have to have some of those cityscape shots where you right. do have more depth of field and you see further in the water than you would. And so we kind of knew that there would be a couple of those in there, but we did our best throughout. And I have to attribute it to Ryan as well for staying consistent and, and being confident with his choice of allowing water to let things disappear to let something come out of the deep blue. Like when you're in the ocean, it falls off and all of a sudden a whale could appear before you. And he was willing to embrace that and also was willing to embrace the fall off of color, which was another concern I had mm -hmm. of just having color be consistent everywhere. And we did yeah. test early on and Ryan then asked the Michael and I, are we breaking it? It's too red. He wanted Namor's temple to be red. And then once you're far away, you don't see the red. And so there was, I think he had a little bit of an internal struggle there of whether that was the right choice. Was red the right choice? And I think ultimately, yes, he wanted it to be red, but then wanted to just accept that red falls off. Red is a color that's absorbed. So it, he really stuck to his initial instincts and let the characteristics of water be water. And I think that's what kind of separates it a little bit from some of the other films that we see out there that, that take place underwater. Yeah, it's really interesting because he not only embraced all of that, he defended it eventually. Because yeah. I remember sure. there were repeated requests from all sorts of different angles. Hey, can we just have this be a little bit more brighter, more colorful, who knows what? And he routinely came back to like all the rules that we had set up at wow. the beginning that were all based on actual reference, on our findings of shooting color charts underwater and That's pulling true. them away from camera, pulling them away from the light to see what really? happens. Yeah. He really stuck to all of that. Wow. And that's what made it look cohesive. Yeah. And I think that was because we did a lot of tests early on, as Michael was saying, in our tank, we had a row of color charts, I think maybe with like seven or eight color charts, each like, let's say a meter or so apart from one end of the tank to the other. And we went to the bottom of the tank, which was 20 feet deep. And we shot them there and then came up a couple of feet and so on and so forth. And you could see the difference in absorption the closer you got to the surface. And then we did the same as the camera pulled back. 
you know, passing each of the lens charts. And then we did the same thing with a character in the water to see how, how did you get to change? I mean, you must have got waterproof lens charts. Was that a deal in itself? <laughs> <laughs> well, we sacrificed a few, but Dent and his special effects team actually laminated a bunch of, ah. of color charts for us, which then that was its own process of, okay, let's see what Resny is using. What is that just doing? The, yeah, just the laminate. Model. There's just the everything turned into a science experiment. It was every <laughs> turn seemed to be another challenge in this one. I will say, I think the underwater sun scene wasn't like, okay, everything's all of a sudden day. Yeah. Uh, but it also wasn't so murky that it didn't have impact and power. I think that was uh, indicative that kind of indicated the way everything was nailed really well. So it was that, was there a practical element to that? How did that work? Yeah. So like the, a massive. There, there was, for the most part, anything that was a heavily or deep character scene or character moment, we ended up knowing that was going to go dry for wet to allow Ryan to right. shoot something practically. And I think, as Michael said, every piece of the film, pretty much for the most part, has a practical piece to it. So the overs, and even if it's just over Namor and over the big uh, kind of atmospheric suit that Shuri was in against the blue screen. We did have something for that. We had representation of what the city looked like from Hannah in production design. So we kind of knew what was out there. And sometimes the photographic piece we had was pretty small, but that's always where we would try to start. So I'm guessing you did a bunch of diffusion effects, things like that, just to layer in. That was all wetter, the compositing on that? Yeah, Sorry. that was all Weta. And I think the other things that I actually should mention is they were using a spectral renderer as well. That was right. a big change as well, as far as how color works. Yeah, explain a little bit about that, because that's even a little foreign to me. Visually, we were trying to be as accurate to the real world as possible, which gets us to the spectral aspect. But I think since we're talking about images, the other part that was very important to this film was to make sure the aspects that did go heavily CG had the same type of characteristics as those detuned Panavision lenses. So we did extensive tests for Weta to develop a lens pipeline, a toolkit, if you will, mm -hmm. that Michael kind of oversaw with Paul um, and the Weta team. Yes. So as just to continue that, let's start with the spectral rendering. Okay. That's a really interesting subject, in particular when you're underwater. So spectral rendering means that you're not dealing with RGB values and that you're not adding like the typical numbers that you're picking in Nuke together to get to a specific value at a specific point in 3D space, but you're actually uh, dealing with waves. And like the math is all happening based on wavelengths. I'm probably not the best person to explain <laughs> that, but what that means is that especially when you're in a different medium than air, aka underwater or in water, where the absorption is very different and absorption means how color or aka light of different wavelengths just passes through that medium, that becomes really relevant. So I'm trying to get my head around what the data looks like. Okay, so it's not RGB encoded, but we're talking about a spectrum. So is this like a massive array, like another thing that fills up your hard drive like deep? I mean, do you know how the... No. No, this is okay. what Jeff mentioned earlier, where we're like having them make the sausage yeah, for yeah. us. We sure. tell them what we would like. But at the same time, I mean, it just means that the math is happening using wavelength and yeah, like yeah. the frequency of light or the different hues of light. I think that's all about like 500 nanometers, if I'm not completely mistaken. My understanding too is, I mean, I think essentially with traditional rendering as in RGB, you've got the three colors. Correct. Yeah. When you go underwater, red being the color that's absorbed first and turns to black, essentially, being one of three, 
gets hit heavily quickly versus the right. spectral rendering, your fall off, your curve of absorption is drastically different because there are so many more levels, for lack of a, of a better term, I guess, or wavelengths. So your absorption of other color values is different, you know, so as opposed to just that one red pixel going yeah. away, you're able to maintain other colors for longer at a greater distance, I should say, from camera. 100%. Okay. And that kind of takes us directly to the lenses because that's, again, what light is traveling through a different medium than air. In this particular case, that's glass. And when light just travels through different glass elements, it ends up getting altered. With the lenses that Autumn was using on this film, those rays were getting heavily altered. And <laughs> it was really interesting because I remember on the first day that I joined the show and we went straight to like a tech scout somewhere in the South. And uh, I met her for the first time and she was one of the big reasons why I was so interested in this project among working with Jeff. The first thing she told me is Dan just built me a lens. And Dan, that's Dan Sasaki from Panavision, uh, who I had worked with before, like briefly, he is the guy who kind of is in charge of detuning Panavision lenses to the likes of DPs. It's come to a point and ex now- Explain detuning for people. Yes. So the majority of films these days are shot on digital cameras. Digital cameras have come so far that essentially the image that they're capturing is perfect. You have an almost noise-free signal. You get like perfect color representation. But it also takes away some of the creative choices that DPs were used to making in the past, where you have different film stocks and they have different amounts of noise levels or grain and different color response. Uh, whereas now we're in a world where if you follow, for instance, DPs like Steve Yetlin, where you can look at the camera as a data collector and you can profile any data collector and the data that you get out of it can be basically identical no matter what you use. Now, the one tool that DPs still have left is the glass that they're putting in front of that perfect sensor. That's their footprint or their mm. signature style. Now we have arrived in a world where it's become very, like I don't want to say fashionable, but DPs just like the, the optical footprint, especially of old vintage anamorphic lenses. Right. And detuning is basically the process where you just change a couple lens elements or move them around or smudge them up or rub a coating off or those kind of things so that the, you're, so they're, you're they're, they're a bane of match movers' existences. They are. Yeah, Correct. Because right. <laughs> you're, you're, int you're introducing intentional imperfections. In, yeah. in, in our case, they were not just minor imperfections. They were massive aberrations yeah. that create a very characteristic and actually cool-looking style. But once we saw the first test images from like, I think, when was it, Jeff? June yeah. 2021, we looked at them on the big screen at Company 3 in Atlanta. We were like, oh, okay, we're going to be in for a ride. Because <laughs> at that point, we couldn't even describe what we were looking at. Because once you moved away from the center of the lens, everything just became, well, <laughs> blurry. But right. like blurry in a very, very interesting way. Swirly, defocused, like creamy. Like creamy. Yeah. All sorts of things. And from then on, we were like, okay, so in order to keep consistency across the whole film between live action footage and CG and consistency was a very, if not the most important aspect to Jeff and myself, just looking at our past relationship, we were always going for everything needs to be like, nothing can stand out. Um, it was clear that we had to replicate all those artifacts. But at that point, we couldn't even, we didn't even know what they actually are. Because let's be honest, up until a couple of years ago, it was always up to individual compositors to just make sure that you're matching what you're seeing in your shot and what the lens is doing. And I've been there myself. You're seeing some sort of aberration, 
but it's not entirely clear what that actually is and they're trying to somehow make it so did you so, guys run grids through and stuff like that or how did you approach it Yes. So this is where it gets really interesting. I mean, first of all, we had to actually understand and learn what those aberrations are. And in order to uh, just trying to assess them, we realized pretty quickly that we needed more than just your typical checkerboard grid shot. Hmm. So, um, I mean, it was a fairly big lens kit, but we shot an even bigger set of grids, maps and charts, which I think ended up being like almost 115 terabytes for the whole show. And it, it was charts with LEDs wow. put in for sampling the bokeh at different angles and PSF charts that we did develop together with uh, with Weta and then all sorts of, of different test patterns that would reveal what's actually happening. And then on top of that, we went through and compared what that checkerboard actually looked like before we printed it and uh, comparing that to what you get when you film it through those lenses. And we started trying to like find out what those aberrations actually are. And I went down like this rabbit hole <laughs> to uh, come up with a terminology. And in that course, I came across like aberration correction for space telescopes. And I learned about the five sidle aberrations and anything that goes beyond that. And then so I you had to go back to school just to figure out how to do <laughs> Pretty this. much, yeah. And then, so early this year, the CineLens manual came out from um, Probst and Holben. It's a DP duo, and that became the Bible. That's where I was like, okay, so we're seeing chromatic aberration here, spherical aberration over there, and then there's some mechanical shading, and the cat's eye defocus is actually caused by this and that, and that all of a sudden we were able to break it down. And yeah. then from that point, we worked very closely with Weta to develop a toolkit that would recreate all of those, I think it was eventually like 10 or 12 aberrations that made that created Autumn's look. And oh. we really- like, Yeah, through a lens too then, so that you could pick, because the 35 was different than the 60, et cetera, so. Yeah, how many primes were on this? We used primarily, I think, three or four lenses, Rala, I think the-, the That 30, is correct, yeah, almost 50. In the 55? 50% of this film was shot on a, a Panavision T-Series 35mm with, uh, I think it was a serial number 101. <laughs> like we, we counted slates and, and went through the whole thing. But it was predominantly in 35, 60mm, 100mm, and 28mm yeah. that most of this film was shot on. Okay. Yeah. Wow. So essentially, after that experiment, and then Weta building this toolkit, that was then shared across all of our 17 partners to try to keep that consistency. So everybody was applying the same look for that particular serial number. So, that so you had to have like, when you were comping CG, those aberrations would just flow completely yep. naturally with the lens, which, yep. yeah, that's impressive given yep. what you're telling me about what the lens actually kind of did to the picture. Yep. No, it was, it was great. And one of the interesting things is in shooting these grids, a lot of them were shot off axis at like a 45 degree. So you could see oh. the fall off of the grid, fall off of the bouquet and racking through focus. And then Weta would do basically a split screen across the bottom of the frame and the top half would be the practical. What we photographed in the bottom half would be the CG version of said grid with the bouquet. And so we could track and see how they were moving. And it was fascinating to see how complex this glass actually was. So given how crazy that was for the match moving, did you have any onset camera tracking data or was it all still post match move for the most part? It was all still post match no. move for the most part. And I do know it was quite a challenge, especially for post vis. Right. Like I think, you know, the trying to work quick, the lenses definitely were a challenge for them on some of the longer shots. 
That is correct. Match moving was generally a huge challenge, and it was clearly because of those lenses. And initially, the ask for our partners to to recreate all those lens operations was kind of there was a little bit of wondering, like what's going on here and why are we doing this? And then, especially once Weta started licensing their toolkit to everyone else, so at some point we ran a couple one hour. Zoom seminars with some of our partners around the world, actually with all of them at, at some point to just like educate and train them on what the lenses do and build a common terminology and explain why we are doing this. And again, the target was to just achieve consistency, not only between live action CG, but also between the different partners and the different right. companies, yeah. different sequences. And now what is really interesting is that some guys came back to us were like, yes, it was a, quite a steep mountain to climb to recreate all that stuff. But then once you apply your CG, you're getting an instant 5% more realism hit. Because right. It just goes on top and it Fs up the image the same way Autumn's lenses put vibe on what's in front of the camera. Mm-hmm. And I, I can understand that resistance from them because there is that thing, typically, especially like you say, with modern digital, the lens distortion is usually so minimal yeah. that unless you've really worked on some of these grungy anamorphic shows, you kind of think, what's the fuss? You guys are yeah. taking this way too seriously. But obviously in this show in particular, it was critical. Yeah. It was absolutely critical. And there was so much more than just lens distortion and chromatic aberration. Once you start looking at Autumn's photography, there's no way you can do VFX without having a, a toolkit like that. Because, I mean, she at the beginning, she was a little bit like, yeah, you guys are just making shit up. Nothing ever looks <laughs> like it was shot through my lenses. And she came back and just the other day was like, man... I really got to say, this looks... I mean, she's got shots on her webpage that are all CG shots. Wow. Yeah, and I think cool. the other part to that puzzle was then also trying to understand and learn Autumn's style, like how she lights, that yes. she uses negative fill, that she likes deep shadows, and then educating the compositors about that, the lighters about that. And then for the CG shots, making sure that people understand how she likes to frame like she'd always center punch like when we were shooting and i sit in the dit tent with her and i just hear her on the comms to the operators like center punch she's always about keeping that that subject or that item right in the center of frame so making sure that our partners then in post know like hey this cg shot let's frame it up autumn would never shoot this way that's Probably interesting you say that around tilt up yeah yeah because i mean that is really one of the big struggles these days certainly most VFX CG people just grow up in front of a computer in their career. And it's not like the old days where people would gravitate Mm -hmm. from cinematography into visual effects. And so there's often that disconnect, right? Where you're kind of having to train people on cinematography. Yep. No, exactly. And so that was great. And I think once it clicked for people that she wanted it silhouetted, she didn't want to see everything. It was okay for things to be in shadow. Once that clicked, and then once we had these lens tools, that's when we really started to get momentum. And then it was over. And then we got to the end. Wow. To a point where she really wanted to come in. I mean, she's yeah. just spent a good amount of time with us in post, especially during the last six to eight weeks. Like she was there almost every week. And yeah. it was great to have her input and look at shots. It really, it helped with, us presenting shots to Ryan in the studio, like having had a review with Autumn where we looked at shots we were struggling with to get her notes on it. She'd be like, oh, that's fine. I can help fix that in the DI. I'll just put a window like, oh no, that one, let's relight. It was a great 
relationship to know that we could show and share with her. And it also gave Ryan comfort knowing that she was happy with what we were doing. So he didn't worry so much about the look and focus more on the character. So it was a great experience. And like I said, kind of the cornerstone of all of our work was that relationship with Autumn. Typically, production and post-production are just two different beasts. And production doesn't care if they screw over the VFX supervisor because it's not their budget and those kinds of things. But it sounds like there was definitely significant continuity between production and post on this one, right? There was. And I was thinking about that today. If... If the DP and the visual effects supervisors can actually unite and be on the same page, there's almost nothing that those two, that group can't do as far as moving the the imagery forward. If they're in lockstep together and they're supporting each other, we can get that side of the stage built. We can get those windows taken out. There's a lot more that can be done if those two departments are working together. They're pretty formidable group then. So the big fight scenes at the end, I'm always curious about this. So you've got these superhero action mechanics and you've got this guy that has wings on his ankles, which clearly would not be sufficient to (laughs) propel him. But then there's some magical mumbo jumbo kind of vibranium craziness happening here. Obviously, at some point, some of the action just has to get cartoony. You cannot hit the beats without it. But how do you kind of straddle that fence between plausibility and like, hey, these guys are superheroes. So not all the rules apply. I'm curious. It's tough. I mean, it's a great question because you want everything to be real. We want it to be based in physics and we go through all of these things and there's no magic. But then at the same time, it's like, wait, the guy has wings on his ankles, right? So there is a part I think where, and I think it's different for every person in the process as far as when they're willing to kind of take that step into something that's a little more mystical, shall we say? And I think for us, the early days of Namor's motion or his ability to fly, it was important for Ryan to be different than anything else we've seen flying, any other characters and any other universes that we've seen flying. And he was a college athlete as well, played football, plays basketball, did track and field. So those were sports that he related to. And we actually referenced those a lot for Namor's motion. Hmm. So to find something that looked different. And I think we didn't necessarily focus or think too much about the lift that you're describing as far as are those surface area of the wings big enough? And we did have that conversation as far as like how big do the wings need to get? But at a certain point, we opted to let the reality of how much lift you needed go and focus a little bit more on the scale of the wings relative to the body. Like did they look out of place or did they look like they fit relative to his calves? And it became more of an aesthetic look as far as the size of the wings went, knowing that we needed to find a motion that was interesting. And then once Ryan liked the movement of football, high knees and spin moves or triple jumps and that kind of stuff, it became a little more shot driven as far as what camera movement was in there. And I'd say the Golden City portion, which was ILM's in the middle of the film, uh, we probably had a little bit more time to polish versus the third act where we were trying to figure out a little bit more of as we were going and didn't have enough time to quite do as many iterations as we did in that first portion once we'd established how he could fly. So I think um, you do kind of have to accept that you're in an MCU Superheroes, as you said. So there has to be a suspension of belief a little bit. As much as we want to not do that, I think you kind of do have to at at a certain point. Well, there's just so much going on in those laws. It is. And I think that's where sometimes MCU does get criticized with how much is going on in those third acts. But I do appreciate it 
from this standpoint, and it hurts us visual effects wise, because it's the imagery sometimes that suffers due to the fact that we're chasing the best story. Well, I think you had like three boss battles going on simultaneously at one point there, right? Exactly. But they're doing that. And Ryan is continually trying to tell the best story for all of the characters. And I think, unfortunately, in doing so, sometimes the visuals are what gets sacrificed in that process. And in my mind, I justify it in a way that as a viewer, I think if you enjoy the characters and if you're in the film with the characters, you're more forgiving of imagery if you like them and the story's moving forward because you're in the adventure. You're going, we're in the theater. We're having this journey together. Whereas I think if you don't care for the characters or you don't care for the story, then it doesn't really matter what the visuals are anyways. It's just yeah. another picture. Yeah. So I do struggle with that a, a little bit as far as the cartoony aspect of it, as you said. But I, I think there is a moment where we do have to just accept it's a comic yeah. book movie and yep. just accept it for what it is and not try to become overcritical of it. Grounded so heavily in reality that it just stops. Yeah, I think you do need to do need to kind of separate a little bit at, at a certain point. And, and just in terms of the mass of that last fight, Mealy, how many of the outlier characters were extras and how many were digital doubles or is it like a one for one and you just cross depending on what was happening to them? I mean, I think that was digital domain and I think they had somewhere around between 115 to 120 character assets of the Wakandans and Talakanil and the Jabari and the Dora. So we basically had a full CG armies that could battle each other for that. But again, we would try to keep as much of that foreground and midground practical to try to help blur the line in between those as well. But there were a ton of digital characters in that third act. Cool. So uh, one of the things that is probably most critical in visual effects is the actual role of the visual effects producer. Yeah. Uh, you have yes. an amazing visual effects producer. Yeah. Tell me a little uh, bit. Yes, our visual effects producer on this was Nicole Rowley. And I, I would say that she was instrumental in pretty much every aspect of this film being put together from the development phases early on, the relationships with our partners, the understanding that filmmaking isn't cheap, and then also facilitating conversations between all of the heads of department from production designer to costume designer to special effects. She was really at the hub of all of that communication and really a team player that kept us all moving and working together. I think, as well as keeping the eye on the end goal of finishing the film. The reality check as well, as far as like, okay, that's a great idea, but we need to do it tomorrow. So I couldn't say enough about um, her support, not just, I think, for visual effects, Autumn as well, from her end. She definitely supported all of us. Uh, And unless you've been in it, people don't realize just the sheer mass of information. I mean, it's a terrifying complexity of stuff that a VFX producer has to deal with, right? Absolutely. And then you add on top of that all of the legal aspects as well, as far as contracts back and forth. There is so much work and responsibility that goes onto those shoulders that I think, as you said, isn't understood and is often taken for granted. Because at the end of the day, often the producer is the one that gets left holding the bag. The creatives, we can kind of drift away. Whereas I feel like she definitely had the responsibility, as did we, but she was phenomenal. And I don't think that we could have done it. And Ryan, I would bet, would agree as well. She was, you know, a support for him as well throughout the process from beginning to end. Yeah, 110%. You don't realize how instrumental a good VFX producer is until you don't have one. I'm always amazed how they keep their cool. Like, there's such a pressure cooker gig and they're 
they just keep it yeah. flowing. Yeah, yeah. A, a big theme on this production was consistency through collaboration. And she really made that happen. Like I have nothing but good things to say. One last question I want to ask you. So no LED volumes on this one. Is that right? Well, we did. Oh, you did? Okay, because I heard there wasn't anything, but... No, well, it wasn't... We didn't go to 11. It wasn't Mandalorian or anything along those lines, but we did do LED walls, and they're actually in-camera finals for and the where, car chase in Boston. Okay. So, so that, again, it wasn't tracking cameras or any of that kind of stuff, but there were in-camera finals of LED walls. So you're saying that the camera wasn't tracked? It was more like a... They were still, it was car process work. Okay, so essentially, yeah. for the most part, you're like on the hood glorified of the car. rear projection, but still exactly LED correct, yeah. correct. But yeah. I mean, it was two days, and like yeah. basically all all close up and mid up shots, or almost all of them, are actually volume shots, and there was very little done to them. I think we boosted some flares or we right. brought some highlights yeah. up or something like that. But overall, there's a lot of in camera files, or more than you would ever think. Yeah. And um, it was a full 270 degree volume with a couple of wild walls for additional reflections and all that. Mm -hmm. And that was another thing that I actually am, am kind of almost a little proud of is we redesigned some of the existing array solutions just because mm -hmm. I didn't think any of the ones that were out there were good enough or wanted to. I was going to ask about that. I mean, even the dynamic range has always been questionable, mm -hmm. right, of those yeah. panels. So where what did you think of the final kind of... So dynamic so range that's a really good question because that can wildly vary depending on how you run the wall in which color space and what content you feed into the video so we ended up designing a seven camera a stabilized seven camera array that could be adjusted for a motorcycle and a sports or muscle car height fairly quickly and then we ran that basically for every single shot in boston and that was six horizontal monstros in this sort of tangen tangential minimized parallax layout and then one fish eye looking up all that stuff was stitched to 24k by 12k lead wow. longs and prepared for volume playback in high dynamic range using the full 15 or 16 stops that we can get from those cameras and then we were also feeding the volume in what is called a, a P pq transfer curve so that you get right. overbrights on the wall and so it wasn't Rec 709 highlight, soft clip or anything like that. There was quite a lot of light coming from those panels. And we had the car on a rig and the bike on a rig so that they could slide forward and backwards against each other. And um, we ended up shooting there with a Venice. And Autumn was actually pretty pleasantly surprised. That was her first time shooting in a volume. Mm -hmm. uh, and it was a custom built volume. I was going to say, she sounds like she would be a tough lady to convince. So if she was... We, no, yeah. we were able to win her over and I think she was happy with what she got. And it was like yeah. that particular moment was the best way to achieve those shots and getting them pretty controlled and in a safe environment and all of that. And, and it was a custom built 270 degree, I think it was 40 feet volume that we had set up at, at Tyler Perry by a company called Monolith, which worked really well. The advantage that we had is that we kind of knew what we wanted and how to achieve it. And there wasn't this whole, what's the nicest way to describe it, the <laughs> bottomless barrel of Unreal Engine environment development yeah. and endless rounds of... Bad. I love the uh, tact with which you say that, but yeah. It's, <laughs> oh, I mean, I've done those projects before and I did through a full round of testing with, um, went through a full round of testing with Epic uh, early in 2021. So I, I knew what was doable and what would give us good results. I, I do want to say hats off to Epic, right? We're not criticizing oh, Epic. No, we're just talking no. about the reality that, that we're it, still in the Wild West. This stuff is still emerging. Yes. Okay. And I think you have to know who your filmmakers are as well. Know whether or not 
we, they, all of us have the discipline to utilize that technology. Yes. And I think that's where, like, I knew that we, Marvel, us wouldn't have the discipline to do all of the prep necessary to, to go to 11 in a volume. However, right. this kind of simpler middle ground thing is totally right up our alley. And I think we was great to have, you know, not that there were going to be hard shots had we done it traditional process work-wise, but every little bit helps. And I think the interactive light, the nice bouquet and the defocus that we got on the volume, once that was out of focus, all of that in camera was great and worked worked really well. And as Rala said, I think the only thing we really had to do was kind of boost the highlights a little bit, just because we weren't getting quite enough range at that top end. That's correct. And don't get me wrong, like I'm a huge fan of volume shooting. We were briefly considering it for reshoots because we had all the scans and all that. We just didn't have enough time to get the content to a good enough level. And then the other thing that you have to be mindful of is our anamorphic lenses had such a heavy optical footprint. You can't use plates that were shot on the wall and then reshoot them again through an anamorphic lens. You just you have to hit the wall with really clean spherical content. And that was also part of the array redesign. We went with the cleanest size lenses you could find. And we went through a lot of testing, trying to find the ones that are just have the best edge-to-edge sharpness, the least amount of flaring, the least amount of distortion. So we can get the highest fidelity and sharpness on the wall and then let Autumn's lenses do all the grunging up, adding Mm -hmm. vibe business. (laughs) Yep. Before we wrap, I always love to hear how people came into this biz. So Jeff, how did you get started? From looking at IMDb, you did a bunch of survey stuff like LIDAR at the beginning. Like how did that all come about? I started, I was theater and art all through high school. And then I actually went to college or university and studied public relations. So nothing very exciting. And then I moved out to California in 96, 97 and got a job at this uh, little company called Digital Domain. (laughs) in operations. So I was actually working for the director of operations. But the cool thing about the job at that point was I interacted with the finance department, all the artists, but as well as the stages um, and the model shop and the machine shop. So I was involved in taking stuff to go get anodized for a motion control rig. And so I was able to see a lot of what digital domain was doing. And at that point in time, nobody had any of these computers at home. You couldn't really do any work at home and they had a training room and you could kind of teach yourself. So I just basically learned Nuke at DD where they came up with it. That was and, the uh, only place to learn it at the time. Right? So yeah. I kind of learned there and it, DD was like a college almost at that point where if you showed interest in hard work, anybody could do anything. So I just slowly worked my way from there onto a show. I was a PA on a show and then a coordinator on a show. And then they started to send me off to locations and so I came up the 3D side through MatchMove integration at Digital Domain, eventually doing environment work, um, and then CG Soup there. And then I was at DD for about 15 years, and then left DD to go work on a Marvel show, Cap 2, Winter Soldier, as the additional supervisor for Dan DeLu. And then at that point, though, we didn't stay on for post. After that, I worked for Chris Townsend as his additional soup on Avengers 2, at which point that's when basically kind of the additional supervisor stayed on through post. Um, and then I've been in the Marvel wheelhouse since then, just kind of gone from one to the next. And I think this now is potentially my first break where they don't have something to just jump onto since oh, then, essentially. Wow. But that's, that's kind of a, it in a nutshell there. Now, I feel like I, I can't wrap this up without bringing up the fact that you seem to have on IMDb at least, a dark skeleton in the closet by the name of Superheroes the Movie. 
yeah. I, I need to know the backstory no, on that one. Okay, so that funny. That's so. It was I think in '96, '97 when I first moved out here. Friends were making a movie, and I was like, "Yeah, sure, we'll help out." And you know, like again, it was like 1996, I think. And I helped in any way I could. And I didn't know much about filmmaking at all at that point. And then they needed some surfer to run out of the water. And I was like, sure, I'll do that. I mean, I don't even think I knew how to really hold a surfboard at that point. <laughs> and so I ran out of the water and it kind of disappeared for years. And I never really knew what happened. And then all of a sudden it, it popped up on IMDb or, or Amazon or something like a year ago. And I'm like, oh, wow. Okay. But no, so that's what that, that was a long time ago that now is. But what's funny is I think because of your like IMDb SEO juice, you're like, number two actor build on the, on the <laughs> so, oh, so that's funny. I saw the trailer on Netflix. I just had to look it up. I was like, wow, that's pretty special. So. <laughs> oh no, that was a long, that was a long time ago. Yeah. Yeah. That was well, that's pretty cool. All those things shape us to make us who we are. There you go. And then Michael, what about you? How did you get messed up with this business? Oh, with this business. Well, I never wanted to have anything to do with filmmaking because I wanted to be a professional heavy metal drummer in the late oh, 90s. Oh, awesome. Yeah. <laughs> and, and that kind of evolved because my parents were like, you want to be what? And uh, so uh, at that point, I was like, okay, maybe I'll become a sound engineer, which I was already going to university for. And then I had something with my ears and I, I had a feeling, oh, I should probably not necessarily... Um, build a career on this now. So I realized that compositing is essentially the same thing as sound mixing, just with images, mm. which takes us back to like waves or wavelengths, because it's just yep. a different frequency. And then I remember that was like in the early 2000s. And there was a film that came out, well, not really a film, like this short on, on a, a web page for the DivX codec that you would use when you rip DVDs. Oh, uh, I remember DivX. Yeah, that was funny. And this 405 film was basically about like an airliner landing on the 405. That was, was famous. I remember that now. Yeah. And it was done by two guys in their basement with off-the-shelf computers. And I was like, wow, that's what I want to do. And wow. in a, then from there on, I mean, I lived in Germany. I grew up in Germany. I did an internship at Scanline in 2004 and, and then stayed with them for a couple of years and then left Germany because I, I just wanted to learn how to surf. So I lived in Australia <laughs> for four or five years and worked at Anim Logic for a good amount of time and at this little company called Fuel, where I really learned how to yep. comp. And then that paid off because I think end of 2010, I got a call from Digital Domain to work for them and Transformers. And I was like... Awesome. I've always wanted to blow shit up. So let's go. And stayed there for a little bit, then bounced back and forth between ILM and DD. And then I met Jeff in 2012, and he was the CG supervisor on Iron Man 3. And that kind of left an impression on me. And he left, I think, just before we delivered the show. Then I worked at Framestore in commercials for a little bit here in Los Angeles because I felt I needed to just get my butt on set for a little bit of time, which is a lot easier to do in commercials. And then I think, Jeff, you sent me an email in like, yeah. when was that? End of 2020. Hey, do you want Would you be interested? And I was yeah. like, with you? Hell yeah. <laughs> you um, still play since, heavy metal drums? I wish, but I still listen to the music. Sometimes I feel like this whole industry is filled with musicians that had to get a real job. Things <laughs> like that. I'm in the number. Yep. You're absolutely right. So. You're absolutely right. All right. Thank you so much, guys. This has been really fun. I hope we can do this on the next film you guys work Absolutely. on. I hope so. And, really appreciate uh, it. Sounds amazing. We'll, we'll talk again soon, hopefully. Okay. Talk to you soon. Bye. Bye. And thanks for your time. Yeah.